everyone welcome my new improv team, Camo Boat Shoes. <laughs> Can we get a suggestion of the worst thing on earth? Uh, oh, I heard Camo Boat Shoes. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a 31-year-old man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid, but I'm reading them now for the very first time as an adult because I'm on a quest to determine if this is a book series that we've all been sleeping on as a society. And I'm not here on this quest alone. I am joined by someone who is new to the show, unless you are at our very recent Seattle live show that, uh-oh, the audio didn't work from, so we have to record this one to make up for that. It's Nathan Cox, who you may remember from Potterless Guesting Days, or if you ever seen me and him do improv together, or if you've just been to Seattle for an improv show in the past couple of years, you might know him. Nathan, how's it going? It's going pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Welcome. I'm I'm the ghost of Seattle past, present, and future. Uh, so uh, yeah, I feel like I'm in the Percy Jackson and the new Olympian universe or family just because I've got that, that Potterless background and the fact that you and I have worked together on all sorts of different things, improvised hip hop yes. shows drinking improv shows, mm-hmm, <laughs> all sorts mm-hmm. of stuff. Yeah. So yeah, happy to be here. I am a little bit less familiar with the Percy Jackson books. In fact, I have read all of them in the past like month or two just to be on the show, because mm-hmm. if I get the invite from Mike Schubert, I'm going to be there. So I've <laughs> put in the work and I am caught up. Yes. I was very excited when I was putting together the live show situation to talk to you, because I believe you had started to get into the pot or whatever. And I was like, look, man, if you read up until what we got to cover, then come on down. So you plowed your way through the books. And now we did the show in Seattle. Your audio sounded great. My microphone did not come through. So rather than deal with audio and make an episode where it's just like, I was considering doing bumping up, you know, your microphone, picking me up, sitting next to you. And (laughs) like, it just, it was a mess. It was going to make my life horrible. It was going to make Sherry's life horrible. It was like, you know what? Let's just, we'll just re-record it. We'll try to capture the magic. And uh, then people will have our upcoming Vancouver show for live purposes. But, you know, now they're going to, you know, maybe it's all working out. They'll get a little studio, Nathan. They'll get a little live, Nathan. And the people who are at the Seattle show can go, ooh, look at me, a tiny little secret that we have. I'll see if there's anything salvageable I can put up on the Patreon and like maybe we can put a hey this sounds bad but it's also not the real episode version but (laughs) at the very (laughs) least we will be covering chapter seven of the fifth book which is our goal here now obviously you've talked a little bit about your history of getting into the Percy Jackson books is there anything else to say there that is the question I ask first time guests but is your history simply just I said, hey, if you read the books, you can be my guest for these two live shows. And you said, okay, sounds cool. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, especially <laughs> my my history when it comes to the Percy Jackson books. I will say that like, I'm fairly knowledgeable about Greek mythology. I found it really fascinating as a kid. I watched those Jim Henson folktales specials that had... Oh. I don't know if you know about these. Uh, I didn't know those existed. Yeah, there's all these Jim Henson things where they do Icarus and Daedalus, for example. Mm. And I don't think that they are 
Muppets themselves, but like I think their dog is a Muppet or something like that. So it's okay. it's that that blend, kind of like Muppet Christmas Carol, where sure. there's yeah. a little bit of humans, a little bit of Muppets, but they're really good, and I, I like those a lot. And I will have to say, of course, I am a Hades boy, uh, just yes, like let's uh, go. yourself. <laughs> Anytime that any of that like popped up, or I saw, I mean, it's not really references because it's all Greek mythology, <laughs> but that definitely influences some of my reading experience. Because in my head, I'm always like, anytime Poseidon shows up, I just hear his voice going, hey, little Hades. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Even though he's not like that at all in these books, but that's still canon for me for the most part. That is fantastic. That is fantastic. Well, yes, I'm excited. And we're doing the fun thing here where you, for this episode, have not read past chapter seven. But in between this and the Vancouver show, you will read the rest of book five. So you will go from similar situation as me to incredibly knowledgeable expert Nathan Cox by the time the Vancouver show comes around. Absolutely. Much as I want to just hang out with my friend Mike during that period of time, which we will and are doing, but (laughs) I'm just like, there will be set periods of time, whether on the train or wherever we're staying, where I'm just going to be like, uh, it's book time. I got to catch up just so that I can have that that knowledge of being a full Percy Jackson expert, capital E. Of course, of course. In time for that show. That way I can still have the experience of being on the trapdoor. So. Right, right. Of course, of course. And don't worry, because I will have to read the chapter. And when I read, it goes way more slowly than a normal human because I take meticulous notes. So honestly, it might take us the same amount of time <laughs> for you to just read the chapters as it will for me to read and take notes. And you know what? I got editing to do. I always got stuff to do. We're going to be fine. I'm looking forward to our train ride. But let's get into this particular episode where we will be covering chapter seven of the fifth book. That chapter is called My Math Teacher Gives Me a Lift, where we last left our heroes, they were just about to shadow travel once more. And the question is, okay, where are they going? Because Percy asks Nico if they're going to Los Angeles. And then Nico says, no need. There's a closer entrance to the underworld. We will get into how this continues. But I always try to guess what's going to happen in the chapter just based off the title alone. And with this one being my math teacher, gives me a lift. I first wrote Mrs. Dodds in all caps with a bunch of question marks. And then I wrote, and it's funny that the next phrase I wrote was lol JK. Uh, (laughs) I ended up writing lol JK. I bet they accidentally run into a teacher wherever they are. If it's a good with any high school teacher, they must still be in New York. What would be the entrance other than Times Square, Staten Island, or Long Island? Since they've already been to all those places, I was thinking those are all the worst places that could be the underworld, but they've already been all of those places. And then, oh no, not New Jersey. And then I wrote, wait, they've already been there. Oh, maybe it's Wall Street. So my guess was that it could be Wall Street as the worst thing that's like, oh, haha, another underworld, but I'm off base to say the least. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of unpleasant parts of New York City, a lot of great New York City, but there's there's a lot of options, but it, they didn't end up going to a horrible place at all. <laughs> no, they went to arguably one of the best ones. I love Central Park so, so much. It's a lovely, gorgeous place where I play softball in two different leagues. And hey, if you want to come on through, 
I might be there hitting singles and talking smack. Anyway, they shadow travel and appear in Central Park, and they are just north of the pond. Mrs. O'Leary starts sniffing around, and Nico explains that it's because they are close to the entrance. And at that point, I wrote, in Central Park? I was devastated that the underworld would have an entrance in Central Park, but I guess it's not necessarily associating evil with Central Park, a lovely place. Yeah, the entrances can be anywhere. It could be a horrible place, a great place. I mean, does it even have to be something like that significant? Could it be like your dentist's office? Could it be like <laughs> that subway uh, next to the gym that you go to? <laughs> like, I don't see why not. Just, I mean, they're all over the place, so... Yeah, yeah. I guess the DOA records thing in Los Angeles wasn't necessarily like a terrible thing. So maybe I was just making that connection in my brain of like, well, I hate the traffic place. So yeah, that makes sense that the underworld <laughs> entrance would be there. But anyway, what we learn about this entrance is that it's the door of Orpheus. So it's the Dorpheus. And <laughs> Percy identifies Orpheus himself as, quote, the dude with the harp, to which Nico corrects him by saying, the dude with the lyre, which uh, just so good. What a wonderful little back and forth there. <laughs> I do also want to be very clear that I had Dorpheus in my notes. So hell yeah, yeah let's minds. go. Great that minds. is why that is why we are friends. That is why you're on the show. That is why you're a perfect guest. <laughs> then Nico explains the myth, which I already know, because of my two main sources of mythology information, Hades Town and Hades the Video Game. So I just breezed through this little recap paragraph from Nico. Come on, Nico, this is my most seasoned myth. <laughs> <laughs> Narrative Percy then says, quote, It was one of those, and so they died slash the end stories that always made us demigods feel warm and fuzzy, which is just great. And yeah, that kind of tracks for a lot of these stories. Yeah, I mean, look, if you go into it knowing that everybody's just going to die at the end, I mean, use the Shakespeare situation where it's like, it's either a tragedy or it's a comedy. Either everybody's mm -hmm. getting married or everybody's going to die at the end. And if you have those two things in mind, then how disappointing can you really be? Right. And I honestly think that this is one of the more compelling aspects of K-drama TV shows. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those, but basically because you know right off the bat, okay, the two love interests are getting together, the two side character love interests are getting together, once they kind of establish that and you know that that's going to be the thing, it allows these shows to have the most compelling character development out of any media that I know because everyone knows like, yeah, 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 whatever, they're going to get together. So then they focus on other things such as the character traits and the relationships and all this stuff. And because you don't have to deal with the whole will they won't they crap that you see in the office and Abbott Elementary even though I love Abbott Elementary I'm not a big fan of the will they won't they that's been going on I think it's very cool that for K-dramas, it's like, yeah, dude, now we can just play in the space because you know it's already going to get together. And then they can do weird things. Like one of the ones I watched was called Beauty Inside, where there's a woman who every time the moon changes to a new shape or the full moon or whatever, like every two months, she turns into a different person for like two weeks at a time. Mm. And then she just has to like live like that. And then the love interest has face blindness or whatever. So then they end up being <laughs> a perfect match. And it's so absurd. But like after one episode, you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got it. They're already going to get together. These weird things are going on. Now let's just focus on the relationships. It's perfect. I think it's great to know the ending to things in certain circumstances. Yeah, I, I think it can work out really well. I, I gotta say, I'm not familiar with any of those K-dramas. I'm pretty much just familiar with 
Squid Game and Physical 100. And Physical 100, the will they, won't they is, will they fill this tube up with sand fast enough for the other team to drop <laughs> off of a bridge? <laughs> Slightly different situation. Slightly different, but still exciting. But yeah, that, yeah. that show sounds very interesting. It's like a, a, a mix between like the movie Identity and Ranma One Half. <laughs> so I'm like, Look. oh, people are changing and becoming different people. But they're all it's yeah that i'm on board yeah beauty inside is good i think it's on netflix it slaps there's a movie version and the tv show version i'm referring to the tv show version great great. but they're not paying me to say this so no free ads let's continue percy asks nico how they open the dorpheus and nico says that they need music and then asks percy how is his singing and percy responds um no which is perfect and would be my response as well because I just can't, I can't handle singing. You know, I have some musical chops, but singing is not the uh, forte of mine, to say the least. Yeah, a man of many strengths, but maybe that's not, I, I, I just now in this moment am realizing that in the six years I've known you, I don't know if I've ever heard you sing. <laughs> that is because selectively, every time we do karaoke, I pick rap songs. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> so Percy asks Nico if he could just magic open the door since he's the son of Hades, but Nico says that music is a must. Percy has an idea and screams Grover, which had me very excited. Love to find a way to get Grover back into the mix. Haven't had a lot of Grover so far in this book. Give me some more Grover. So he screams this out. They wait a while, but then they don't hear anything aside from traffic and what Percy believes is a mounted police officer. And ACAB Jackson is back because he says, (laughs) quote, I was sure they'd love to find two kids hanging out in the park at one in the morning. Ooh, his disdain for the police. (laughs) Yeah, but like also, isn't Nico exactly what you think you would find in terms of a kid you'd find hanging out at one in the morning? Like he's all like German techno hot topic up. Uh, (laughs) He just kind of looks like that kid that you would see there who like they're really not getting up to any actual bad activities. It's just that they want to put out the vibe that they're getting up to bad activities, which I feel like is pretty much Nico's whole thing because like, yeah, he's kind of a necromancer, but like, what is he really doing with, is he doing nefarious things with these dead people? Not so much. And so I think he just pretty much wants to like have the, the good look out on the street corner at night and have the cops talk to him just so he could be like, yeah, get out of here. Cops scram, get out of here. Fuzz. So that, <laughs> that way, like, he doesn't have to deal with them, but yeah, no, look, it could track. It could track. Nico thinks that Grover isn't there, but Percy's empathy link is tingling for the first time in months. And about this as the narrator, he says, quote, which either meant a whole lot of people switched on the nature channel or Grover was close. Narrator Percy and Percy really hitting this chapter off strong. Love to see it. Percy truly focuses, and then he has an image in his head of an enormous elm deep in the park. The roots of the tree are wrapped around a sleeping satyr as if they are pulling this satyr into the earth. Percy calls for Grover to wake up, and it doesn't work. He says to Grover, hey, you're covered in dirt, and that doesn't work. Then he mentions food, and specifically he mentions pancakes, and that wakes Grover up instantly, and honestly, same. That would track for me. If I was rolling around in bed mumbling and my dad or Kelly was trying to wake me up and they were just trying to get me up, I could be a little grouchy. The second the promise of food is put forth, yeah, I'm getting out of bed ASAP. Yeah, yeah. If that buckwheat and maple syrup hits my olfactory bulbs, you best believe I'm out of bed and down those stairs. (laughs) Yeah, baby. That also could have been an E-40 rhyme. (laughs) (laughs) Those olfactory bulbs. (laughs) 
that's that's a cut just for the the, the bay hip-hop fans that are listening to the episode oh, e40 what a guy what a guy everyone go and watch the music video for choices right now it's just perfect just search e40 choices and you can thank me later mm-hmm. grover then falls out of the tree next to them and i thought Okay, no way they were that lucky that they happened to just be standing by the one tree. There are thousands of trees in Central Park. Central Park is gigantic. I I give Rick a lot of credit for coming up with some pretty cool inventions and some creative things and how to deal with not quite magic, but like God powers and stuff like that. But he's starting to get a little fast and loose with the transportation options in the series. Cause so far <laughs> we've got the labyrinth. We've got the underworld. We've got Pegasi. We've got shadow travel. We've got hippocampi. And now we're on to tree surfing. Like, could you not have just brought back one of the greatest hits of transportation that you already have? It was a little bit, maybe, too far for me i mean i get it like grover needs to have he's a nature boy he needs to have his nature travel but i don't know it was just a bit much yeah i can see it i can see it i was also confused about the dynamics of the tree situation so what happens is grover says that he was at the other end of the park but the dryads passed him through the trees to get there and I was wondering, like, are the branches shoveling him like it's this big game of Grover hot potato? But yeah, I agree. There are a lot of different modes of transportation in the series. I think it's one of those things where it's just like it's a book series and they go to a lot of different places. And sometimes you're going to have to just deal with that. But yeah, I am curious about specifically how the tree surfing worked. And we'll just have to see how they do it in the show. And how do you think that Juniper feels about all these other dryads having had their hands all over Mm. Grover? Like, Mm. I don't know. That's a little personal for me. Hey, you know, depends on the manner in which they're holding him. Yeah, you're right. Hey, we'll have to see. I'm sure they were they were cradling him like the little goat baby that he is. So (laughs) narrative Percy then describes Grover a bit. And a key detail is that he doesn't disguise himself anymore, which I think is great. He's fully embracing his satyr self. He's not dealing with the fake shoes and all of that. He is also wearing a Where the Wild Things Are shirt, which is very on brand and fantastic. Narrator Percy says, quote, his goatee looked fuller, almost manly, and then in parentheses, goatly with a question mark, and he was as tall as me now. Love that. Love the little things where Narrator Percy is playing in the space as narrator. I always find this to be very funny. I love when Uncle Rick does them. Yeah, he does a great job at that. I do want to ask you a quick question. I I will Mm -hmm. admit to the listeners, I did after reading the first book, watch the first movie. And I know that you have not watched either of the movies, correct? Mm -mm. I have not because I believe that there are some Easter eggy type things. I know the second one just like goes way past the story of the second book. I think there's some stuff in movie one that might spoil me in the future. So I'm just staying perfectly clean and I will watch them soon after I finish the fifth book. Got it. Understood. Percy greets Grover as G-Man, love it, and reintroduces him to Nico. Grover nods at Nico and then hugs Percy, tells him that he misses him and that he misses camp, and he also misses enchiladas. Got his priorities all there. Percy asks where he's been the past two months. Grover is floored that it's been that long because he thought that he just had taken a nap. And then he recalls someone unnamed knocking him out, and he tells Percy that they got to get him. Percy requests that he first tell him what happened so he understands what the heck he's talking about. And Grover says that he was walking in the woods by Harlem Mere when he felt a tremble in the ground as if something powerful was nearby. 
Apparently, since Pan's death, Grover can feel when something is wrong in nature. His senses grow sharper in the wild. So he followed the scent, and he came upon a man in a long black coat who did not cast a shadow who was walking through the park. Grover says that he shimmered as he moved, and whenever he passed a human, and then Nico finishes his sentence saying, quote, the humans would pass out, curl up, and go to sleep, and Grover confirms that this is correct. He then adds, once he left, they'd pop up and continue as if nothing had happened. Percy asks Nico if he knows who this guy is, and Nico says that unfortunately he does. He then asks Grover what happened next. Grover says that he followed him. He saw him looking up at the buildings as if he was making estimates. A jogger passed by and then passed out, and the man put out his hand on this jogger's forehead, and then he kept walking. Grover knew this guy was evil, so he followed him into the grove by the big elm tree. Grover was about to summon dryads to help him capture him, but then this guy turned around. Grover couldn't make out his face because it kept changing, and Grover asked this guy what he was doing. He said that he was having a look around and scouting the battlefield before the battle. And Grover, admitting that it was whack, so glad he did this, Grover told the guy that he, Grover, is protecting the forest, and no battle will take place under his watch— and this guy chuckled and told Grover that he's lucky he's saving his energy for the main event. And then he granted Grover a short nap. And then Nico identifies this guy as Morpheus, the god of dreams. Oh, intense. Pretty cool, but I really like, as a Hades game fan, I was like, oh, be Hypnos, be Hypnos, be Hypnos, mm. even though that is not what Hypnos is like at all in the game. No. And I also wonder if that's one of those things where like Hypnos is the god of sleep, not dreams, whereas Thanatos is the god of the dead, but Hades is the god of the underworld. Like it's one of those, or Thanatos is the god of death and Hades is the god of the dead. You know, one of those things where it's similar, but not identical. Right. Right. And I actually like, I did a little bit of research cause I was like, Oh, Morpheus. Like, and obviously everybody thinks of like the matrix first, if you hear the name obviously. Morpheus. And so long I, black coat, even too, like, come on, <laughs> it's right there. Right. Right. He's wearing the sunglasses that have no arms. That's <laughs> just the lenses oh, and the bridge. Oh, the little, no. Yeah. So good. Yeah. But, <laughs> In my short research on Morpheus, I found that he was responsible for messages from the gods in dreams and for creating human forms within dreams. Mm. This isn't Greek mythology overall, but Phantasis and Phobator, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, are responsible for animals and inanimate objects in dreams, which is wild that like the Greeks were so obsessed with dreams that they're like, oh, we have to create like a whole mini pantheon of gods to be responsible for all of the parts within the dreams. And then that like also made me interested because recently I saw someone mention online that we never use cell phones in dreams. Oh, you're right. Yeah. That like we walk around and we like talk to people and we have to like run around in order to do this communication, but we never actually pull out our cell phone because it would like answer all of our problems but also if the whole thing about like fantasists and, and Phobator like are responsible for objects and dreams, that would make sense because they didn't have cell phones back in Greek days. So mm-hmm, they're not going to put mm-hmm, those things mm-hmm. into the dreams because they're just not pulling out their sidekick and hitting somebody up or typing Excel tweets like they're Nelly and Kelly Rowland in the Dilemma music <gasps> video. Uh, <laughs> yep. Iconic, iconic. Yeah. Look, that's what you do. You <laughs> flip out your sidekick and type into Microsoft Excel. Yeah. And that's how you text people. And that would also explain why in all of my dreams, I'm using an abacus because I'm using their set dressing, <laughs> not my own. 
So Yeah. Yeah, that does remind me of in college, I had a brief phase where I tried to get into lucid dreaming because Inception came out around that time. And one of the things I learned was that if you see a digital clock in a dream, if you look at it and then you look away and you look back, it will not show the same time. Like it's going to switch just because like your brain and technology and dreams like doesn't process. Hmm. So if you are trying to lucid dream, I couldn't do it. I'm like such a deep sleeper. I just can't make it happen. But that is one thing. And then another thing, apparently light switches just don't do light stuff in dreams. Like if you turn on a light switch, something will change, but it won't be a light turning on or off. So if you're trying to, you know, make that happen, there are some tips that I learned from Googling stuff when I thought I could be whatever Leo's character in Inception was. Didn't work out. Didn't work out very well. Man, I'm so excited though now because like the concept, I've never heard that about the light switches and I never really do lucid dreaming. Sometimes I feel like I can do that a little bit like right in the morning when I'm waking up. But like mm-hmm. all I'm going to do is go to a light switch and be like, switch it. There's a sandwich. Switch it. I'm in Africa. Switch it. I'm on the moon. Switch it. I just got a job as an engineer. Switch it. Like, because at that point, it's not up to me. My brain's not in charge. It's just the ultimate RNG of the light switch that's telling me what's there and what's real. So, mm-hmm, 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 thank you mm-hmm. for that tip. Hot tip. Yeah. Hey, just trying to do what I can to help. Now, I did take a very important note in my notes after we learned that Morpheus was this person. I wrote, does his face morph because he's Morpheus or Mm. anyway? Yeah. (laughs) Correct response. I believe that was the exact response of the audience at the show. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Nico says that Grover is lucky to have woken up at all. Grover reminds Nico that he's been asleep for two months, which is still a very long time. Percy asks why the nymphs didn't try to wake Grover. Grover says they aren't great with time because two months to a tree is nothing. So they probably didn't think that a two-month nap was that big of a deal. Percy wants to figure out why Morpheus was here and what the main event is. Nico details that he's got to be working for Kronos, like many of the minor gods, and this is proof that there will be some sort of invasion. He tells Percy that they must continue with the plan. Grover asks what plan, and the narrator Percy just says... We told him. And then Grover is spooked, mainly because it involves going to the underworld. But this is the point where I'm getting a little frustrated with the lack of the plan. And you and I had texted about this as you were getting up to this chapter. I think in book five, as you had pointed out, this is kind of the only extended period of time where we have narrator Percy just straight up withholding information from us. In the past, we have some things where... You don't really get it, but like more often than not, it's them trying to have a conversation and then something happens and then they don't get to talk about it. But this is just narrator Percy straight up lying to us. And I understand that just by the nature of how this story works and to make this one compelling, you can't really do a lot of the tricks that were done in the earlier books, but it is making me slightly frustrated. Yeah. And also like because he's telling this all in the first person, it gives you a weird feeling where you're like, Percy, I thought you and me were tight. Yes. I thought that like you told me everything. Yeah. And we were completely in the loop together and we were like best friends as you were telling me the story. And now all all of a sudden I'm your friend, but you can't tell me what the plan is. Like it makes a weird shift in the personal relationship between the reader and the narrator, who is also, of course, the protagonist. And as a result for me, it kind of breaks that relationship it also makes rick the writer very much in the room like i feel like mm. before i've just been 
in the room with Percy, and now I'm in the room with Percy and Rick, because otherwise Percy would tell me everything. Uh-huh. We're best buds. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, up until this point, he's been an incredibly reliable narrator. And at this point, he's not lying like you can sometimes get in other books, but he is withholding information. But yeah, that's a really good point with the feeling Rick in the room. I think it does lose the immersion just a little bit because with it being first person, like you're saying, when he doesn't say something, it makes you think, why don't you wait? What, what you told Grover? Tell me. You're supposed to tell me too. You always tell me. So yeah, you're right. You're exactly right. Yeah. And I'll get over it. I'll forgive him. We'll be friends again, but just tell me the plan for goodness sakes. Like, come on. Yeah. I think it's just a very particular instance of the way the plot has lined up. You have to do this. Otherwise it would be kind of boring, but it is still something that's a little frustrating, but I don't know that there's a different solution given where the story has led us. Mm -hmm. Percy to Grover says, quote, I'm not asking you to come, man. I know you just woke up, but we need some music to open the door. Can you do it? Grover says he can give it a shot. He cites that he knows some Nirvana tunes that can split rocks and asks Percy if he's sure. Percy says, please, man, it would mean a lot for old time's sake. And Grover says, as I recall, in the old times, we almost died a lot. But OK, here goes nothing. So uh, do we have any guesses as to what Nirvana songs we think are being played here? I mean, I feel like everybody's going to assume that it smells like Teen Spirit because it's the go to. It's like mm-hmm. the ultimate song of the 90s. But for me... What he should not play is lithium because the lyrics are, I like it. I'm not gonna crack. So that's not gonna work. Yep, bad call. But in the song, Polly, Polly wanna cracker, that might work because it's telling them to, to crack open. So I'm using my deep, deep Seattle boy Nirvana mm-hmm. lyric knowledge to really decipher this. So in my opinion, he should go with Polly, but when, you know, whatever Grover chooses to do. In the moment, but he's, I mean, he's groggy. He just woke up. So it's probably going to be smells like teen spirit. It's probably the one he knows. Totally. Totally. I can see it. My choice at first was going to be in bloom just because that's my favorite Nirvana song. And then I thought, wait a second in bloom actually works because Grover nature bloom. (laughs) That would be my choice, but I don't know. Maybe we'll just see if they do it in the TV show. Narrator Percy describes the tune that Grover plays as shrill and lively, which are two words that I would not use to describe Nirvana. (laughs) So I don't know what happened here. Eventually, the boulders crack open and reveal a triangular crevice. Percy pokes his head inside, and he sees stairs that lead downward. It reminds him of the labyrinth, but it feels more dangerous. Narrator Percy says, quote, it led straight to the land of Hades, and that was almost always a one-way trip. Yeah, I mean, scary stuff. Scary, scary stuff. Percy looks at Grover and says, thanks, I think. Grover asks if Cronus is really going to invade. Percy wishes that he had a different answer, but he's pretty sure that it is going to happen. Grover says that he will rally the nature spirits in that case to see if they can help, perhaps by finding Morpheus. Percy then says, quote, but tell Juniper you're okay too. And Grover says, Juniper, oh, she's going to kill me. And I wrote my notes, because she's evil? With four question marks (laughs) and three exclamation points alternating. (laughs) I get the strong feeling here. Again, I've only read what you've read. But this, to me, felt so much like a goodbye, see you later at the final battle. I know this is the second time I've mentioned Muppet Christmas Carol in this podcast, (laughs) but that's exactly what happens with Gonzo slash Charles Dickens and Rizzo the Rat is they get to a point where they're just like, this is too scary for us. We'll see you at the finale. And that's a little bit what this felt like. It feels like Grover did a guest appearance uh, who's like a character from a previous season of a show, and he shows back up just for a moment, but then he's back gone again. So, But like, he's got to be careful because like, 
what's not to say that Morpheus isn't going to find him and put him back to sleep again. Morpheus, I, before we get too far off of that, he seems like such a dangerous God. Yeah. Because if he can give or cause specific dreams, then he can do that to anybody at any given time. And they can go missing for two months and just be in some like treetops and you won't know who, where they are yeah. or what they're doing. And I also want to point out that like, a third of these books are Percy having dreams. Yeah, big percentage. And what's to say that those dreams are real? What if Morpheus made those dreams happen? We don't know if that's the case. And man, like reveal at the end of the book was like, oh, all these private moments that you had that were only in your own mind and our mind because we're best friends. You <laughs> thought it was real, but all of that was fake. And uh, yeah, we'll know, I guess, at the end of the book. But I'm hoping if they don't do that in this series, I hope Morpheus comes back and that's like an ultimate like villain move along the way because I feel like there's so much to play with. But I also am like, I don't think we're going to see him again just because he's not that well known in Greek mythology. But yeah, fingers crossed. I hope we do. I wonder if there's some sort of Greek honor where it's something to the effect of dreams are a safe space and they are always true. <laughs> you can always believe a premonition dream, but I don't know. We'll just have to see. We'll have to see. Yeah. yeah. Grover starts to run off, but then turns around and hugs Percy, which is wonderful. Love that. Absolutely love that. Then he also tells Percy to come back alive. And this is becoming a common theme amongst his friends. We had Tyson do this earlier when he had a similar send off of, oh, I'm going to do my own thing while you continue on Percy. And now Grover's doing this here. Just uh, finding a bit of a theme here. Everyone letting him know, please don't die. I would prefer it if you didn't die. Nico and Percy then wake Mrs. O'Leary, who is elated once she smells the underworld from the crevice. They descend, and it's a tight squeeze, making Percy wonder how much Drano it would take to free her in a jam, which is fantastic. And now that they are heading into the underworld, I think this is a good point for us to take our break for the mid-roll break, The Cash Olympian, where we'll talk about other live shows and other fun things going on with the podcast. Wee. Hello and welcome to the Cashed Olympian. Thank you so much for being here. I'm coming to you live from the Shubio and I'm here to talk about fun things with the podcast. If you want to rep the show with some TNO merch, we've got the merch store, obviously, which has a whole bunch of fun stuff. We've got the Riptide pens and the What's Good shirts and some other digital items as well. But also, you can get exclusive merchandise if you join at particular tiers on our Patreon. That is where you can get Persea Later merch. And only there is where you can get Persea Later merch. You can get Persea Later stickers. We send two different colorways of the sticker. It's this nice retro Persia later font design that I worked on with Kelly and I think turned out really nicely. And then that design also is an enamel pin that you can get if you join at a bit of a higher tier. And then we also have special holographic stickers if you join at the Olympic Court. And Kelly and I have been sending out a whole bunch of packages. Thank you all so much to everyone who has supported. And if you've got those stickers and pins and you want to show them off, take pictures, post that on social media. I would love to reshare it. It's always delightful to see those things out and in the wild. My parents are currently in town. Barb has a Persia later pin. She wears it proudly on her jacket every time she visits me, and it makes me very, very happy. From a logistical note, just want to remind everyone that we will be off next Monday because July is one of those five Mondays in a month months. But don't worry, because there will be content posted on the Potterless feed, posting some old live show audio there. And uh, maybe there'll be something on the TNO feed as well. You'll just have to see. 
And of course, I'm continuing to post stuff to the Patreon. There will be a new bonus episode. There will be a new monthly live stream. Lots of fun stuff there. And speaking of that Patreon, I want to give a shout out to the folks who have joined the Patreon most recently over at the newestolympian.com slash Patreon. So shout out to our newest mega god tier patron, Dia Grace. Shout out to our newest super god tier patron, Meek Sauce. Shout out to our newest god tier patrons, Finn Fantastic and Hephaestus Rules. Yes, that has three Zs. And shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Ellie Lone, Joshua Kisscamp, and Madzo Bean. Thank you all so much for your support. May Hestia bless you that your oven, which I guess is basically the hearth of the kitchen, may that preheat to the temperatures you need it to be quickly and efficiently. Now, if you're all caught up on the News Olympian and you are looking for a new podcast to listen to and you like me and you want to listen to more podcasts from me, well, boy, oh boy, do I have good news for you. I make a whole bunch of podcasts. I'm an independent podcast boy, 100% independent podcast boy, and I make these podcasts that I think you would like. And it's not just the News Olympian. There are other ones. And one of the other shows that I I made is called Modern Muckraker. We've made one season of it so far, and we worked together. I keep saying we because it was an entire team. There were writers, there was a showrunner, there was editing teams, there were people doing research and music work, and a lot of people put effort into making four episodes of an incredible podcast where it was scripted, and I was playing the role of a journalist who is convinced that he is completing the world's most important research, but really the questions that we answer on the show are things such as, if you lost half of an orchestra, what remaining instruments would produce the worst possible sound. It was very fun. It was super silly. We interviewed highly overqualified experts, and I'm really proud of these episodes. You can listen to them wherever you get your podcasts by searching for Modern Muckraker or going to our website, modernmuck.com. Now, before we wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me. Others of them won't. The ones that are not read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Seattle, don't be surprised if you hear an ad for Zuave, which is actually a really good Italian restaurant. They're not paying me to say this, but if you're in Seattle and you're looking for a really good Italian meal that's basically in an Italian family's backyard, go to Zuave. But once those ads are complete, we will get back to this episode of The Newest Olympian. This episode of TNO is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Now, in this chapter, we see Grover talking with Percy about food. And the food that they talk about maybe isn't going to be the best in terms of nutritional value. They're talking about things like enchiladas, which are delicious. But are they nutritious? I don't know. Depends on the ingredients. But if you are looking for something that will give you those vitamins and minerals that you want to get each day, you could start taking Athletic Greens. I started taking Athletic Greens because I was traveling. I'm not traveling anymore, but I am using it more and more than I normally do because I've been scooping it into my smoothie. I make fruit and vegetable smoothies basically every morning for Kelly and I to have. And I've been putting in a scoop of athletic greens into that smoothie, which is really nice because it's got a whole bunch of good stuff in there that I might not normally get from my diet. And it's very simple just to open the jar from my fridge and scoop it in. And the smoothie tastes great. And it's even healthier than it was already going to be. Love that. With just one scoop of Athletic Greens, you will absorb 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and more. It's a small microhabit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do each day to take great care of yourself, and it costs less than $3 per day. So if you want to arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, you can do so with Athletic Greens. And to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash newestolympian. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash newestolympian to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. So if you want to have something to pair nicely with your enchiladas to make sure you're getting your vitamins and minerals for the day, check out Athletic Greens today. This episode of the New Olympian is brought to you by Thrive Market. Now, at Camp Half-Blood, they are cooking up a whole bunch of fun stuff at the cafeteria, but we never really hear about where they supply 
all of the things for the cafeteria. I'm not sure where they get their stuff, but you know where they should get their stuff? Thrive Market. Thrive can be your go-to for all of your grocery and household essentials, and it has been my go-to. I've got a bunch of stuff from Thrive now, and I genuinely enjoy all of it. I've got Thrive trash bags, dishwashing detergent, snacks, rice, beans, things that wash my dishes, like scrub brushes and stuff. They have a lot of really great deals. I've been capitalizing on those deals and I have truly been enjoying using Thrive Market. I love a lot of things about Thrive. I love that they only allow trusted top quality ingredients while restricting harmful ingredients like artificial flavors, high fructose corn syrup, and more. And whether you are looking for organic kid snacks, high protein essentials, whatever it is, you can curate your own shopping experience with a few clicks. They've got all these different filters and stuff like that, different categories. I utilize those when I was looking for particular items, and it was really easy to navigate the site. I always have a simple time finding what I'm looking for. And it's not just saving time, I'm saving money as a Thrive Market member. I'm looking at my stats right now, my average savings per order are $34.98. On my last order, I saved almost $50, and I got a whole bunch of things for my pantry. I got hand soap refills, I got chicken broth, I got rice, I got beans, I got kitchen towels, it was great. Save time and money and shop Thrive Market today. Go to thrivemarket.com slash TNO for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash TNO, thrivemarket.com slash TNO, so you can be as well-stocked as the Camp Half-Blood cafeterias are today. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. This episode of The New Olympian is brought to you by Straight River Coffee. If you've been listening to The New Olympian and you're thinking, my goodness, I would love to pair this podcast with a nice warm cup of joe, but not just any nice warm cup of joe, but specifically TNO branded coffee. Well, you are in luck because TNO coffee exists. That's right. We have partnered with Straight River Coffee, which is a small independent business that is made up of folks who listen to The New Olympian and we have teamed up to make TNO coffee. So there is a specific roast from Straight River coffee called Anna Clues Roast. I came up with the name. I think it's very good. And you can get a one pound bag of coffee from them if you go to the newsolympian.com slash merch. I'm not a coffee drinker, but multiple people have told me that the coffee tastes very good and smells incredible. And here's the description of the coffee from Straight River. Sourced from the finest fair trade beans, our collaborative blend boasts flavor notes of nutty caramel and rich chocolate, ensuring each sip transports you to a realm of excitement and wonder. It's cool. The bags were also made by an environmentally friendly bag company and the art design on the bags, which yes, is a pigeon drinking a cup of coffee. Those were made by another independent artist, Ava Hess, who does some incredible artwork as well. So it's a bunch of small businesses and independent creators teaming up to make this coffee happen. And it's really cool. And it also ships free internationally. So it doesn't matter if you live in the US or not the US. The price listed is the price. No extra shipping fees. It's super cool. And you can get a pound of this wonderful coffee delivered to you or multiple, I think. You, you can probably get more than one bag. I don't know. But go to thenewsolympian.com slash merch, scroll down, click the link about the coffee, and then boom, you can get some Anaclus roast in your cup today. And then you can perfectly pair TNO coffee with your TNO podcast. 
And we're back, and we're headed into the underworld. Mrs. O'Leary runs ahead, loudly and happily. Percy proceeds, slowly by the light of Riptide, and Nico trails behind even slower, which confuses Percy. He asks him what's up, and Nico says he's fine, but Percy senses doubt on his face. An hour has passed, and then they hear the roar of a river, and I just wrote, sticks. It's to their right, with the ramparts of Erebus, quote, the great black walls of Hades' kingdom to their left. One, I gotta know if these ramparts are crenellated. Those are my favorite type of ramparts. But two... I'm glad to actually learn what Erebus is, because Erebus does show up in Hades the video game, but I had no idea what it was. In the video game, it's these levels where the difficulty level is temporarily ramped up, and if you beat a whole level without taking any damage, you get a double reward, which is very cool. But I had no idea that it was the wall protecting Hades or the gates of Hades. Pretty neat to learn what it actually is. Yeah, when I assumed that when he entered Erebus that he just entered a square room where he just had to beat people up for two minutes. And mm-hmm. if he didn't in time, he didn't get food. Right. But yep. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm a little bit disappointed that's not what it was. But also, thank goodness that's not what it was, because that's some pretty lazy world building by both the Greek <laughs> gods and by Rick. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's some better stuff than just, hey, fight some people. Percy is worried and thinks to how Grover and Annabeth kept him brave the last time that he was here. But the last time he was here should actually have been when he was here in the Demigod Files with Nico and Thalia. So this chapter gets a bit confusing at times with whether or not Percy remembers the Demigod Files stories, if they actually happened. So it's in a weird bit of flux. Percy thinks that Nico won't help him in the bravery department because he looks absolutely shook. Mrs. O'Leary, though, having the time of her life. She grabs a human leg bone and trots over to Percy so that he can play fetch with her. Percy tells her that they could play later and asks Nico how they do this whole plan. Nico says that they have to enter the gates now. Percy doesn't understand because the river's right there. Nico says that he has to get something and it's the only way and then he heads off. Very suspicious. Percy follows, despite not wanting to, because he doesn't really have any other idea of what to do. And as narrator Percy, he notes that Nico never mentioned this. So incredibly suspicious behavior from our pal Nico. Yeah. And I originally at the end of book three, I was convinced that Nico was the actual like big bad of the series. It just felt like Rick was setting him up so solidly to be like, oh, screw your mythomagic figures. Uh, I'm done with this. You killed my sister. Like it felt like a great origin story for a villain. And so I've been a little bit surprised that it doesn't seem like we're really following through on that. I'm kind of glad because like he's such a interesting and fun character. Mm -hmm. But the way that I could tell that it wasn't really going to be a true villain situation was, as I mentioned earlier, they just completely hot topic edge lorded him out. So like now I just see him as a miniature Gerard way from my chemical romance. Yep, correct. And as a result, I'm like, I can't take him that seriously or think that he's up to anything nefarious. He just wants to write comic books and punk songs. So yeah, for sure. I wish I could have fully been in your brain space at the end of book three, because you texted me after you finished book three that you thought that there was a little bit of love chemistry between Thalia and Percy, and you thought that the love triangle would be Thalia, Annabeth, Percy, not Rachel Elizabeth Dare, Annabeth, Percy. And that's just fun for you to be in the space where you're thinking Percy might get with Thalia and Nico might be the big bad. What a wild time for your brain to be in after finishing the Titan's curse. Yeah, yeah. I went I went all over the place. I, I made some some assumptions that maybe I shouldn't have made, but like I No, I it's still, lovely. I love the 
theories. I still swear there was like moments where they were talking about where Percy is great at not knowing what other people think about him, particularly mm-hmm. when it comes to women that he might be attracted to. Yeah. He gets it wrong all the time. And there was a couple moments in that book where it was like Thalia was looking at me weird or strange. Like there's something she wanted to say. And I can't remember exactly what the text was, but it really made me feel like there was something unspoken and that's a classic narrator move to be like, Oh, they wanted to talk to me where they were looking at me strange. And that usually means romantic feelings. So I mm. jumped to a conclusion, but I'm kind of glad that it didn't work out that way. Thalia has enough going on. Sure. She was a tree for a while. She doesn't need to <laughs> deal with sudden romances with 15 year old or four. I don't even know how old he is anymore. <laughs> now he's almost 16, but yeah, at okay. the time would have been a little younger, but yeah, no, I agree. She's a tree. She just got to focus on being a human for a little bit. Yeah, and now yeah. she's an immortal human or in, uh, not immortal an invulnerable human, I think is the technical term, but yeah, she's got enough on her plate. She doesn't have to worry about boys. Come on. Well, it's true. She should just ground herself put down some roots, you know. (laughs) Yeah, just leave it alone. Yeah. Uh, So there's a huge line of the dead waiting to go in, and even the easy death line is full. Mrs. O'Leary rushes up to smell Cerberus's butt, of course. Nico smiles, but then gets gloomy again and tells Percy to head through with him because no one will give Nico or his guests any trouble. They enter the fields of Asphodel, heading toward the Palace of Hades. Percy asks where they're going. Mrs. O'Leary then growls at someone with a shriveled face, a horrible blue knit hat, and a crumpled velvet dress. She has leathery wings, talons, and a paisley handbag. So, of course, it is Mrs. Dodds, and I'm kicking myself for not being able to guess that the math teacher would have been her. I just forgot the whole Mrs. Dodds, the Furies. Obviously, the Furies are more likely to come back, especially because they are going to the underworld in this chapter. I'm not necessarily always in the best spot when I'm trying to guess these chapter titles because I just want to read. I just want to go. So I don't give it much thought. But this one, not a good look for me. (laughs) Yeah, but also like we haven't seen her really since book one, like so long ago, which I mean, great callback on Rick's part. Mm hmm. But also, like, I don't blame you for having missed that. Also, I'm really glad that in this moment that Mrs. O'Leary is, like, being protective. After there being previous book parts where you weren't really sure whether Quintus was a good person or not, or Mrs. O'Leary was, like, truly pure or positive or whatever, like, of course she's protective. But I also just like the idea of a dog who would do that for you in the most scary of circumstances because if I brought my dog Nandor with me and I got swooped up by a fury or something happened to me, like Nandor would have already trotted down to Elysium trying to get scritches from Patroclus. Like he would just be like, <laughs> yo, where do I get some undead snacks? Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I would never see him again, uh, or at least not for a long time. So thank you, Mrs. O'Leary for in, like, but also I got to say he's Nandor. I can't be putting bad things out into the the universe (laughs) about him. He's a great dog. Nandor Husker pup on Instagram. Go check him out. He's real cute. Yes. Yes. Good pup. Good pup. I would have told you to drop the handle if you didn't. I'm glad you did. Percy addresses her as Mrs. Dodds. She says, welcome back. The other Furies arrive. Nico is surprised that Percy knows Electo. And now I'm really confused because... In the Demigod Files, they flew via the Furies after they dealt with Bob, Nico, Thalia, and Percy. So this whole conversation felt like it's in a world where the Demigod Files didn't happen. So again, like I was saying before, a little bit of a back and forth. And then also, to bring myself down to further peg, for me... Because I read the Demigod Files, Mrs. Dodds did show up not very long ago. So for me to forget her existence just makes it look even worse. Ah, uh, <laughs> see, I, in the sake of speediness, 
I didn't read the demigod files. So for sure. me, this all makes sense, but it just yeah, also yeah. makes, it makes Rick's editor look bad where it's just like, did you read the demigod files? Because you should yeah. have caught this, but yeah, I'm just confused about it. Maybe I'll figure out more like behind the scenesiness, but mm. I'm going to wait till I finish book five and just see exactly what's going on. Cause it just feels like sometimes they are acting as if those short stories happen. And sometimes they don't goes a little back and forth. Nico says to the Furies that he's done what his father has asked and tells them to take the two of them to the palace. Percy is nervous and confused as he should be. Nico explains that this is the new lead. Hades promised him info about his family, but he wants to see Percy before they try the river. He apologizes, but Percy is absolutely furious and lunges at Nico. Two Furies swoop in and grab Percy by the arms before he can get to him. They fly Percy up 60 feet in the air, and then he drops Riptide, which will always terrify me. It just will always forever terrify me that there's going to be some sort of situation where Riptide doesn't come back to him. Maybe in the underworld we learn, oh, your magical sword has no power here or whatever. I just, I never, I never like it. I really just am on edge until the sword is back in his pocket as a pen. Mrs. O'Leary then starts jumping and barking at the Furies. Nico instructs Percy to get her to calm down because he doesn't want her to get hurt. He insists that Hades just wants to talk. Percy wants to tell Mrs. O'Leary to attack Nico, but he knows it's a bad idea, so he tells her to calm down, and she does so while whimpering. Percy then turns to Nico and says, All right, traitor, you've got your prize. Take me to the stupid palace. Ugh. And I'm hopeful at this point. I was hopeful that this would go better than what Percy is thinking because my current hope for Hades was that he was just being misunderstood. Hmm. Doesn't go swimmingly. Yeah. Doesn't go super well. It's not looking hot for your Hades redemption arc that you've been really banking for for a long time. <laughs> mm. No, not at all. Electo dumps Percy off in the middle of the palace garden. Narrator Percy then says the following. It was beautiful in a creepy way. Skeletal white trees grew from marble basins. Flower beds overflowed with golden plants and gemstones. A pair of thrones, one bone and one silver, sat on the balcony with a view of the fields of asphodel. It would have been a nice place to spend a Saturday morning, except for the sulfurous smell and the cries of tortured souls in the distance. Alrighty, that's certainly one way to paint the scene. Love mm -hmm. it, love mm -hmm. it. Mix of comedy and cool vibes and scary vibes. As Percy sees that skeletal warriors with guns surround the exit, the third fury drops off Nico beside him. Percy resists the temptation to strangle Nico and bides his time for when Nico doesn't have the furies to defend him. This is just big reputation era of <laughs> <laughs> Percy Jackson. And man, I gotta say, I was really worrying about all the things that I just said about like, oh, Nico is such a nice boy. And then all this is happening. I'm like, oh, man, was I wrong? Did, did I really get thrown? Like, I'm not really sure at this point, mm -hmm. because at this point, I'm like, Nico, you done messed up. Yeah. Like, there's some bad things happening here. <laughs> also, like, I got to point out, what is it with the use of camo and military gear on every like neutral bad guy? If they're not a god, if it's a skeleton or undead or whatever, it feels like every single bad guy who's just like a, an average grunt, they have like a bazooka and a camo tank top and like <laughs> army issue khaki pants and stuff like that. And it makes yeah. me wonder like if Rick has a military background or just like, I don't know, like if in like a later book, like Percy gets bit by a squirrel, will he look down and see that the squirrel's wearing like army shoot sweatpants and a bandolier <laughs> and a headband and just like ramboed out uh, from the claws up. So <laughs> I would guess that it's because in the most 
common case, these bad dudes are usually vaguely army related. Like we had the mercenaries. These skeletons are basically Hades's army. So I think it's usually because they happen to be army type dudes or Rick is right. Camo, it's not a good pattern. Not necessarily a good pattern. <laughs> it's hard to match camos. No two camos are the same. I wouldn't recommend it. What I would recommend doing, it's a joke that I've thought of that I've never done. But if I ever see someone wearing full camo, I'm always tempted to walk into them and then act really confused. Like I walked into nothing. And then when they start talking, just say something like, who said that? Who's talking to me? <laughs> always very tempted. Yeah, I strongly encourage this. And I, I think you're right, though, that like him dressing these villains up in camo, maybe he's just trying to show their character by showing that they have awful fashion sense. Uh, I mean, we've seen it. Luke wears boat shoes. I mean, good, good I mean, point, good point. <laughs> Oh, we just have to wait for the perfect combination of someone who's wearing camo boat shoes. <laughs> oh, my <laughs> Then we God. know that that's the big bad. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's like the opposite of me in personality. Camo boat shoes, I think, is like the farthest you can get from pink pants boy, Mike Schubert. Yeah. Everyone welcome my new improv team, camo boat shoes. Oh, <laughs> uh, gosh. Can we get a suggestion of the worst thing on earth? Uh, oh, I heard camo boat shoes. <laughs> Percy stares at the empty bone throne and silver throne as three figures appear. Hades, Persephone, and an older woman proclaiming, quote, told you he was a bum. Just finishing whatever <laughs> sentence that was. Persephone addresses her as mother because of course it's Demeter. And she and Hades try to get her to quiet down because they have visitors. Hades greets Percy. Persephone stares at Percy. He thinks about the only other time he saw her was back in the winter. And now I'm thinking, okay, he does remember the demigod files. But a couple of sentences ago, he didn't. What's going on? But now that it's the summer, Persephone looks completely different. She has shining black hair, warm brown eyes, and a colorful dress filled with floral patterns. And this tracks for her whole vibe of the different seasons and all that. So I get that. And that's cool that Uncle Rick has made that take place in the book series as well. I'm a big fan of having Demeter be just like a really good personification of her role and things as far as like the seasons and everything. The thing I wasn't really quite as ready for, but they have fun with it. But she kicked it off with like, I told you he was a bum where she just really comes across as that like mother-in-law who can't stand her son-in-law. Mm -hmm. And like, there's a lot to play with there, but also like, I'm like, it's a little bit of a, either like a stereotype or just a trope or whatever. But yeah, I can't be that mad at it though, because it's also kind of fun and having someone just like completely take the piss out of Hades is like really great. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that is the more fun element of it. I don't think Rick gets into like any true problematic category with it. I think it's just the grouchy mother-in-law because we kind of got the grouchy girlfriend's mom with Athena with mm -hmm. the whole stay away from my daughter. So now that we get the complaining mother-in-law, I think it's just like a classic trope. Percy says that this older woman truly looks like Persephone's mother based on appearances, same hair, same eyes, but looks older and more stern. Demeter is wearing a golden dress that looks like a wheat field. Her hair is woven with dried grasses that make Percy think that lighting a match near her would be a poor choice. Fantastic. This older woman, still remaining unnamed at this point in time, is grouchy at the prospect of talking to demigods. Nico kneels, which makes Percy want to hit him with Riptide, but Riptide hasn't reappeared just yet, and of course, I am very nervous. Nico tells Hades that he did what he requested. Hades says, took you long enough. Your sister would have done a better job, which it's just, like, that is just so unnecessary, and I just wrote in my notes, damn it, Hades, I was rooting for you. Like, that's just the worst way to open an interaction 
absolutely unnecessary. Yeah. And it, it speaks so strongly of the kind of like cycles of abuse thing where I'm pretty sure like Kronos probably said that to Hades and then the miasma that spawned Kronos into being probably said that to him or just like, there's this like abuse from parental figures. <laughs> I don't really know how I'm stuck past Kronos. Kronos is Hades dad, right? Let me double check. Mm-hmm. Father of Hestia, Demeter, Hera, Hades, Poseidon, and Zeus. Okay. Got it. So yeah. Anyway, like it just sucks that like Nico has had such a bad experience having like a lack of a father figure or really a kind of like a parental figure much at all. And all of a sudden he's finally getting to be back around his dad again. And he's just completely making him feel horrible, look horrible, paint him in the worst light. And I'm sorry, Shubes, but the good guy Hades arc is this really kind of puts it in the ground for me. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was feeling by the end of this interaction. Narrator Percy says, quote, if I hadn't been so mad at the little creep referring to Nico, I might have felt sorry for him. Love that he calls him the little creep. I like when Percy's emotions still find their way into narrator Percy. It's so good. It's so good. Percy glares at Hades and asks what he wants. Hades says to talk. Percy thinks he's been brought down here to be killed. Hades corrects Percy that Nico does sincerely want to help Percy. And then, after saying this, he says, quote, the boy is as honest as he is dense, which, again, super unnecessary. But Hades convinced him to take a detour along the way, which is where we are now. Nico reminds Hades, for the benefit of the reader, I guess, that he promised to tell Nico about his mom if he brought Percy. And Persephone lets out a big sigh and asks, can we please not talk about that woman in my presence? <laughs> Which is understandable. Like, I can totally understand the wife of Hades not wanting to talk about the side fling. I get it. Then it feels almost impossible because, I mean, it just kind of feels like everybody is hooking up with everybody. Like, mm -hmm. everybody's got a dozens and dozens of different partners. So, like, who can you really talk about at that point? Yeah, it's got to be a tricky situation to be, I guess, like the main spouse of a god because... I don't know, Zeus alone, like, how many people is he boinked? Like, ugh. Oh, I mean, goodness the gracious. swans alone have to number in the hundreds, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hades apologizes to her, but says that he had to offer something. Demeter is upset. Harumphing. Harumphing. In the book, it says harumphs, which is good. I gotta get harumph more into the lexicon, because my goodness. She harumphs. Quote, <laughs> I warned you, daughter, the scoundrel Hades is no good. You could have married the god of doctors or the god of lawyers, but no. <laughs> you had to eat the pomegranate. I love it. I love it so much. You know, I actually dressed up uh, once for a... Uh, <laughs> A theater prom at the college that I went to, the theme for the theater prom was heroes and villains. And me and my girlfriend at the time dressed up as Hades and Persephone. Nice. And I mean, it was basically one of us was wearing a black, I was wearing a black bed sheet. She was wearing a white bed sheet. Hey, that's good enough in college, baby. <laughs> yeah, that worked. And she carried around a pomegranate the entire time. So, uh -huh. but everybody was just like, isn't that a mango? And we we're like, this, we can't, let's just not try to explain it to anybody. I'm sorry. Think, these people... Was it actually a mango or was it a pomegranate? Those do not look similar. It was a pomegranate, but my recollection is that multiple people were just like, oh, is that a mango? <laughs> like, I would be really concerned for these people. Those don't look similar at all. Yeah, well, college students aren't really renowned for their knowledge of eating fruits and vegetables. It's just whatever <laughs> they have at the dining hall, whatever. I don't think they have a mango pizza coming down the, <laughs> the aisle anytime <laughs> soon. So, But yeah, oh every time that they mention a pomegranate in these books, which is fairly often when Persephone's involved, I just, I smile a little bit because of that mm -hmm. ridiculous 
poorly put together costume, <laughs> but I'll take it. Fantastic. Persephone tries to stop Demeter, but she continues and gets stuck in the underworld. Persephone tries to stop her again. She continues that it's August and Persephone still hasn't come up to visit her lonely mother. Hades then finally IDs her for the reader as Demeter. So she was unnamed this whole time. Finally, she gets clocked as Demeter, but it became quite apparent who she was. The way he does this is by screaming her name and reminding her that she is a guest in his house. She replies... <laughs> Oh, a house, is it? You call this dump a house? Make my daughter live in this dark, damp? And then Hades interrupts, grimacing, explaining that with the war above, Persephone is safer down here. Percy interjects to request them to hurry up with killing him if that's their plan. Getting comedic. I love that comedy always finds its way back into the room. They all turn to him, and Demeter says, well, this one has an attitude. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And I feel like maybe even grumpy mother-in-law vibes aside, I feel like she just hits such the perfect disgruntled mother of many different backgrounds. Because I feel like there's all these different versions of the disapproving mother. And you could read this a lot of different ways. And I really like it. I love that the door for Demeter feels very open. And I'm intrigued to see how they cast it in the TV show. Well, that's true. I didn't even think about that point. But yeah, I mean, like, look, you're right. Mothers have expectations Mm -hmm. We let them down. It's part of the cycle of human reproduction, <laughs> gestation, birth, disappointment. You know, you got to get it all in there. <laughs> the circle of life. Oh, now you have heard me sing and see how bad it was. Uh, <laughs> Hades agrees, says that he would love to kill him. Nico objects because Hades promised not to. Persephone also defends Percy by telling Hades that he can't torch every hero and Percy's bravery is admirable. So interesting that Persephone, maybe it is just the summer vibes, but her vibes here very very different than her vibes in the Demigod Files. Hades rolls his eyes and says that she also liked Orpheus, and that didn't turn out super well. But then he pleads to her, quote, let me kill him just a little bit, which is, <laughs> oh, that's so funny. As angry as I want to be with him, that is very, very funny. <laughs> Nico objects again. Hades finally launches into the description of Nico's mother. And this is what he says. She was wonderful. And then glances at Persephone and caveats for a mortal. And then continues saying that her name was Maria D'Angelo and she was from Venice. However, her father was a DC politician and that's where he met her. Hades says when Nico and Bianca were young, it was tough being a child of Hades because World War II was looming. And, uh, and some of his, quote, Ah, comma, other in italics, children were leading the losing side. Gross, Quite gross, the way gross, gross, to gross, just gross. say, like, yeah, my kids are Nazis. Some of them, at least. Yeah, yeah. Didn't really like the feeling that Hitler and Mussolini are demigods here. That's yeah. not a great, but, like, I'm glad he he brushed past it quickly. But mm -hmm. I still got to wonder, like, do we really need to include that and make that semi-canon? <laughs> yeah, I guess you try to just look at it in the way of like demigod doesn't equal good is like the best read. So we'll just move on. He brushed past. Let's also brush past. Hades thought that the best course of action was to put them out of harm's way. Nico asks if that's why he hid them in the Lotus Casino. Hades says yes, because they wouldn't age or notice time passing. So he could just wait until the time was right to bring them out. Nico questions what happened to their mother and why he cannot remember her. Hades snaps, not important, meaning that it is super important. Mm -hmm. Nico agrees with me saying that it's got to be important. And then he also asks why only he and Bianca were put in and who is the lawyer that removed them? 
Haiti says that Nico would benefit from listening more and talking less. And I don't think that that's how asking questions works, especially if you're going to withhold information. If you are seeking particular information that is not just being brought to you, you have to ask questions, and that does involve speaking. So this feels incredibly unfair of Hades. Yeah, I agree. It's not really fair. And like, just overall, philosophically, I don't really agree with what Hades is putting forward in this whole conversation that they're they're having. Like, he's trying to justify his own bad behavior. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me to agree with, with Hades here. He acts like he has some sort of obligation. But there was also another god in the last book that talked about how there isn't really proof that the gods are more good than the Titans. But the series also, like, definitely portrays them in a better light. So Hades trying to act like he has some sort of like obligation to them. It's hard to say, and it's hard to tell. That's part of what's also difficult about this is obviously the Titans are being depicted as the bad guys. They're being depicted as like the ultimate villains, but some of these gods are also really horrible and really terrible. And so to have his whole like rationale be like based on that fact that, oh, well, the gods are better and the Titans are worse. I'm just like, we don't really know that for sure. And this whole decision that he's making, it seems like it's really kind of like based around that fact. And I'm just not fully on board that the gods may not ultimately be worse in some capacity. Yeah, I think it might be Janice who first kind of introduces that in book four Mm -hmm. when they're talking about the minor gods being left out and they're like, oh, are they so much better? So, yeah, I mean, certainly an interesting thought. But yeah, it's just weird that Hades is being so shady, shadies, and (laughs) ah, it's just it's just not ideal. Now, he does reveal that Electo was the lawyer, which I think is a very cool reveal, and I did not see that coming. Nico asks why she freed them. Hades says it's because, quote, this idiot son of Poseidon cannot be allowed to be the child of the prophecy, which I think is very interesting. And I can kind of see Hades' argument there, seeing that he's the only person that actually followed through with the pact. But if this is your plan, why not tell Nico earlier? Why not clue Nico into what's going on so that he knows what's up? It just feels like if this is your objective, why not? bring in the person that it's about sooner. Yeah. And it's just more disrespect for Nico really, Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. he should know he should be in the loop, but that's not being done for him. And like, again, just like more bad parental guidance. Like he's just not going to win father of the year for sure. No, he's not. Now here is something that I actually laughed out loud while reading. Percy plucks a Ruby off of a nearby plant and just chucks it at Hades. (laughs) Love it. Love a pluck and chuck. And it just sinks into Hades' robe. Percy yells that he should be helping Olympus like the other gods instead of just sitting here. Hades says that he's waiting things out because Olympus has never helped him or welcomed one of his children as a hero. And he, again, is not wrong, but it's not just Olympus that we're talking about here. This war is about the world. The Titans are going to destroy the world. It's not just a beef between this small subset of beings who have wronged you, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage, namely society. Come on, dude. You have an obligation to try to help that out. Percy asks what Hades will do when Kronos comes after him. Hades isn't worried because he figures Olympus will at least weaken Kronos, and then Nico, with four more years of training, can become strong enough that by the time he's 16, he can make the choice to save the world, and then Hades will become king of the gods. 
Unfortunately, Hades throws even more shade at Nico, saying it would have been better if Bianca survived and this plan revolved around her instead. I don't understand why he's doing this except for just being a jerk, and it feels like he's just kind of a jerk. Yeah, I mean, he must authentically, truly have zero confidence in Nico, except Nico just proved to him that he can follow some of those directions. Like, he had a plan given to him, and then he delivered. Mm -hmm. So... Even after he delivers on the plan, I'm like, oh, shouldn't this be the situation in which you dial it back and give him a little bit of credit? But no, he's just relentlessly giving him all this crap. And it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, this chapter really did so much to completely sour my hopes and even potential thought that it might be the case that Hades would have a cool redemption arc. The best case scenario is like he will begrudgingly help them in the end and it'll be like, yay, but it won't be, oh, the gods, you misunderstood, which makes me a little bit sad, but we'll see how it plays out. Percy thinks that Hades is being foolish, saying that Cronus will defeat him right after he's finished with Olympus. Hades says that Percy will have the chance to see for himself because Percy will be sitting this war out in his dungeons. Nico cries out that this wasn't part of their agreement, and he hasn't even told Nico everything. Hades says that he's told Nico all that he needs to know, and then says, quote, As for our agreement, I spoke with Jackson. I did not harm him. You got your information. If you had wanted a better deal, you should have made me swear on the river Styx. Now go to your room. And... I'm very frustrated with this, but also feel like Nico probably should have known this, especially if he would have read the books that he's in. <laughs> Ugh. But Hades waves his hand and then Nico vanishes. Demeter says that Nico needs to eat more, specifically cereal. And the cereal, it's got to be Count Chocula, right? It has to be Count Chocula, <laughs> yeah. yeah? I mean, something like that, Booberry, Frankenberry, something scary. But man, he needs to eat more cereal from the god of the harvest, particularly grains, is a really good joke from Rick. Yeah, she keeps coming in <laughs> with cereal throughout. She keeps trying to suggest, like, oh, cereal will solve the problem, cereal will solve the problem. Persephone tells her to stop with the cereal and asks Hades if they can just let Percy go. Hades says no, and he says that sparing his life is being nice enough to him, which I don't think that that's how being nice works. Just saying I didn't do the worst thing possible, therefore I'm being good. No, dude, that's not how it works, my guy. Definitely not. Yeah. Narrator Percy says, quote, I was sure she was going to stand up for me. The brave, beautiful Persephone was going to get me out of this line break. And then Persephone shrugs and says, fine, what's for breakfast? I'm starving. It's, again, bad situation, but also hilarious. Yeah. Demeter, of course, says cereal. Persephone says mother, and then they disappear in swirls of flowers and wheat. Hades tells Percy not to feel bad because his ghosts have kept him informed of Cronus's plan, and he can assure Percy that he didn't stand a chance anyway. He says that by tonight, it will be too late to save Olympus because the trap will be sprung. And I wrote the what in all caps. But Percy even asks what trap? So we're on the same page. And then says if Hades knows about it, he should do something about it. And it did remind me of the line in the first Fantastic Beast movie when there's some evil magic going around and then someone in the background kind of muffled goes somebody ought to do something about it <laughs> which is my favorite part of an otherwise meh film and an otherwise terrible film franchise hades then smiles credits percy for being spirited but then tells him to have fun in the dungeon the fungin and he will check on him in about 50 or 60 years and i just wrote no and that is the end of chapter seven and that is the end of this episode of the newest olympian and here we are fun times am i right yeah yeah we did it we got through it yeah i'm very curious looking forward 
we've already had so many teleporting shenanigans going on. Mm-hmm, so like mm-hmm. we've had a lot, it's jailbreak time. We got to get them out some, right. some time. I don't know how yeah. long he's going to be in there, but I feel like we've got a lot of options for breaking him out. Mrs. O'Leary somehow, Poseidon somehow, Blackjack somehow, Shadow Dashing. Hey. Uh, or or like maybe there's like the, a labyrinth door. Maybe there's a Dorpheus in the fungeon. Ooh. <laughs> Look at all the puns. A Dorpheus in the fungeon. <laughs> <laughs> and for me, like the one thing that has been like sitting in my head that has not been used. And I feel like there have probably been like a dozen different items that Percy has been given but hasn't used yet. But the main one that's coming to mind was the sand dollar that he got. Right, and right. I don't know what that's for. I don't know how that's going to be used, but that's like my top prediction of how I think somehow like he's going to like use a sand dollar, like a credit card and like swipe it. (laughs) Okay. uh, Okay. He'll get teleported through the ocean or something. Do you have any predictions yourself of how you think he might get out? That's a good prediction. I feel like the sand dollar, it just feels like it has to be more water based. Mm. It just feels like a currency that, the underworld would not care about. So that wouldn't be my guess. As far as breaking out, my only thought would be Nico, because I just can't think of any other way that Percy gets out. Like, he doesn't have any other friend in the underworld. So yeah, I think it's either Nico or Mrs. O'Leary. Those are the only two things. Those are the only two underworld companions that he has. So that would be my guess, unless we get something ridiculous where like Annabeth finds her way in there or mm. like Clarice or whatever. But I just feel like it would be one of his underworld pals. So that would be my guess. But we will have to see because you'll be back, but in live format to do chapter eight. But until then, if people want to find you doing stuff on the Internet, you already plugged the Nandor Instagram. Is there anything else you want to shout out to the folks, like especially if they live in Seattle and they want to come to some improv shows that you're in? Yeah, absolutely. It may still be going on. I'm not sure if this will still be happening when this comes out. But right now I'm doing Sound and Fury, which is an improvised Shakespeare show at Comedy Sports Seattle or CSZ Seattle, uh, your former improv home. What up, what up, what up? Yes, my old stomping grounds. And then I'm regularly doing stuff with Jet City Improv as well. Uh, if you want to check out any of that, uh, my link tree is in my bio, which is just Cox Shots <laughs> at mm-hmm. Cox Shots. Cox is my last name, C-O-X-S-H-O-T-Z. So yeah, my link tree is there. Any links to stuff that I'm working on. Also, I will always eternally shout out uh, the serial podcast Mermaid in Manhattan. <laughs> still mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. on the internet, I think, even though it's like eight years old at this point. But I, I love it and it's super fun. And yeah, that's pretty much what I got going on. Otherwise, I'm just really excited to get into this next live show and get back in front of an audience again. And hopefully this time it'll get recorded. So (laughs) yeah, for sure. We'll double, triple, quadruple check. But Nathan, thank you for joining. Listeners, thank you for listening. And until we figure out what's going on with Percy in the Fungin here, until we determine how he's going to get out of there, I'll pursue you later. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Newest Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campamanas and Brandon Google, and the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you want more TNO in your life, there's a couple different places you can find us. You can find us on social media. We're at Newest Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're on Reddit, reddit.com slash r slash The Newest Olympian. And then Patreon has a whole bunch of bonus content at thenewestolympian.com slash Patreon. Speaking of the Patreon, I'm going to give a shout out to our producer level patrons, our members of the Olympic Court. 
Chelsea Gillespie, The Damn Steam Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Hoskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Haley Hastings, Robin Garcia, Frida Vikstrom, Megan Moon, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Giselle Salvador, Peter Johnson, The Twins, Sabrina Balsiger, Bony Pony, Heather McMillan, Casey Williams, Polly Burridge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Josh Sayer, Joshua Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Wise Girl, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco Redhouse, Caden Max, Sam Sam Reby, Riley Kittes, Mary Kelly, Audra, Mrs. O'Leary, Rodith Kalma, Milo Kim, Fred Cabras, Harlan Crisp, Cece Reads 23, Sankoff, Julia Kendall, Emil Oscar Thomason, Liz Cardigan, Zachary Hamilton, Sarah Neal, Ricky, John Drillsma, Demigod Nurse, Rayla Matthews, Riley Draken, Lunica Dune, Sky Mallory, Elizabeth Obermiller, Aiden Parziani, Biggest Tyson Fan, Hunter Landstrom, Captain Jack Rackham, and Sky Captain and the Princess. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, you can talk about the podcast. Word of mouth is so huge. Whether you tell someone directly, you know someone who is a PJO fan or someone who's been looking for an excuse to read the books, you reach out, hey, there's this podcast, TNO, The New Olympian. It's perfect. The host is great and also humble. You would love it. You should check it out. Or you can post about us on social media or you can leave us a rating and review on whatever podcasting app you're using. All of these things really help. And if you do any of these things, I am so, so thankful. And if you do them in the future, thanks in the future. But I'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode and I hope you tune into our next episode where we'll be joined once again by Nathan Cox, but this time it's live in Vancouver and the audio worked as we cover chapter eight of The Last Olympian. But until then, I'll pursue you later. Hey everyone, how's it going? It's me, Ace Marmix. So here in the Shubio, I've got lots of things that help me with my podcasting creative world. And one of the things I have is the dice that I use when I do my D&D stream 20 to midnight with the other podcasters that make that show super fun every other Wednesday. And I've got my thing that holds the dice in it and then a whole bunch of dice. So I'm just going to hold it up real close to the mic and open it up, take out the dice, shake them around a little bit. And that will be the ASMR mic segment. So here we go. It's me opening the case. Now I'll be taking the dice out of the little holders. And now I will just shake a bunch of them in my hands near the microphone. I've rolled them. I've rolled a, uh, a two, a seven, a four, and a one. So quick math, that's going to be 14. It, I, that feels pretty good to me. Don't know what I was rolling for, but I did roll and I hope you enjoyed. Thank you for listening.